Well, welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. This time I've got Gonzalo from Syndicaroom, the founder of Syndicaroom, who I've known for five or six years, who's become a friend. And we're going to talk through his journey and the various journeys he's experienced of the businesses that he's helped raise investment. So Gonzalo, a bit about your background. Oh, hello, Peter. Great to be here with you. A little bit about my background. So I'm Portuguese. I was born and raised in Lisbon, where I studied an engineering degree, and then eventually moved to the UK about 14 years ago to study at Imperial College to do a master's. Halfway through the degree, I had a job offer in London. I thought, well, actually, I'll stay for a little bit longer. And that little bit longer, that one year, ended up being 14 years and counting. So it, uh, it has uh, dragged for all the right reasons. So I started working in London after that. I've always been very entrepreneurial, so I also started my own business at the same time. Uh, it's a very small business, but that was what allowed me in 2010 to move up to Cambridge and to do an MBA at the Judge Business School in Cambridge. And that's when I had the idea for Syndicate Room and when I actually met you as well. So that's really my, my story till now. Good, okay, so let's talk about the idea, how that fitted in. It was very early days for the point where electronic platforms were going to be used to raise cash. Talk about your idea, how that developed while you're MBA and then the launch of the business. Yeah, so the idea actually came from working people like yourself when I was working during my MBA and I was working with business angels and VCs and I started seeing crowdfunding in the sense of sort of rewards, crowdfunding like Kickstarter and so on and equity crowdfunding just starting to appear. And I could see the appetite by individuals to invest in the same businesses that business angels invest. But what they had available online was not the same thing as, you know, it wasn't the really exciting companies, incredibly inspiring entrepreneurs that I could see people like you investing in. And I thought, hang on, I could see those companies also struggling to put a, a large funding round together from business angels. I could see people online interested in investing into those businesses. So why not put the two together? And that's really how Syndicate Room was born. And we created this investor-led model whereby there's always a lead investor or lead investors, be it a business angel, a venture capitalist, a family office. And then what we allow is online investors to invest alongside those lead investors. And our whole vision is that it shouldn't really matter how much you are investing, be it a thousand pounds or a million pounds, when a pound per pound invested, everybody should make or lose the same amount of money. So everyone is sharing the risk and the reward fairly. And that's really how Syndicate Room was born. Yes, so you formed the company, I, I think, when you were still an MBA, didn't you? And got a little bit soon of... Soon after, yes. Soon after. A bit of family and friends money, which I joined in Correct, at that yeah. point. So this was just a very small amount of money, in the low tens of K, I think, at that point, wasn't it? It was. I think our first round was about £15,000, which somehow I managed to stretch for quite a few months and do the technology, all the legal background work with the help of people like Tim Bellis, who is now our chairman. And back then, that was all so new that no one had really built a similar platform in terms of technology. And no one had really gone through the FCA to get authorization to this type of platform. So everything was so novel that there was not really the expertise available to just to do it quickly, uh, sort of off the shelf sort of solution. So that was really the initial struggle was, how do we build this thing? And the other struggle was, how on earth are we going to find investors to help us with this vision and invest into this vision? Because it sounds a little bit absurd now, but actually only five years ago, no one really believed that anyone would ever invest online. 
That's similar for any startup that's going to go into a disrupting market or a disruptive market. You have a co-founder, Tom Britton, who had also did the MBA with you. He did two years after me, so he joined about a year and a half into the journey as I had sorted the legals and the base of the technology. And then when he finished his MBA, and that's when we launched Syndicate Room in, at the end of summer of 2013. Okay, so before that, you'd raised the two family and friends rounds. And another round, or was that just about to happen? <laughs> so that was about to happen just before Tom joined. Yes. And that round, unfortunately, one of the lessons learned was it had the wrong investors involved in the round. And uh, about 48 hours before the company was running out of cash, but we had the funding round sorted, so we were not worried. We were actually very excited about, right, let's finally start building the business. And uh, it was a small round. I think it was about 150,000 pounds or a little bit more than a little that. Maybe more than about 180 yeah. or something like that. And just 48 hours before we were going to run out of cash, which was you know, Friday, but we had the money already in escrow accounts. So as far as we concerned, the, the round was sorted. And Tom joined on Wednesday. And uh, on his first day in the job, soon after he joined, I got a phone call from investors changing the terms of the deal and then eventually making the whole deal collapsing because I didn't really want to work with uh, that type of investors. Exactly. Okay. And in, in return, I think we then brought in Jonathan Milner, who's very open about his investments in this business. Yes, correct. So as the funding round collapsed and we all sat around the table trying to rescue the round somehow and therefore the company, and uh, as I had just fired my co-founder in his first day in a job and proceeded to ask him to work for free instead because I, we didn't have any money to pay any salaries, which he did accept, we had two days to rebuild a funding round that took about six to nine months to build. And if a lot of the investors that we had were great and were really supportive, like yourself and others like, like yourself. And they actually, a lot of them increased their stakes a little bit, but it wasn't enough to close a full funding round. So they said, look, we are increasing our stake, but you need to find the rest of the money in 48 hours in August when everyone is away on holiday. And that's when I had a phone call with Jonathan um, following, I already knew him. And uh, he wasn't interested in investing in Syndicate Room because it's too early and too outside of his uh, type of investment. Mm. But he did invest, and then, you know, and then the rest is history. And he's still on the board, isn't and he? So, he's yeah. now, he, well, he, he invested and said, that's absolutely fine, I'll invest, but I will not be involved because I'm too busy. He was the CEO of AppCam, a yeah. £2 billion pound company at the time. He's no longer the CEO, and then eventually he joined the, the board of directors of Syndicate Room. So this is this raised then you'd raised a total of about a couple of hundred thousand at this point. The tech was being done by somebody in Portugal, so the cost was kept lower there. And how big was the team at this point? Just you, Tom, plus one or oh, two others? No, no. At this point, it was just Tom and I. Okay. Then uh, Fran joined us soon after that. I can't remember the exact month, but soon after that. And then we started building the team up to four or five people. And so when was the first deal put on the platform then? How many months from the point of getting the decent amount of money and the first deal where you could actually generate some revenue for fees? Yeah, so the first deal that we closed was at the very end of 2013. And then 2014, then was really when things started happening. At the beginning, as with any startup, the entrepreneurs are, as I was, and still I'm always very optimistic, and I was looking at, great, this is the best idea ever. I'm going to switch it on and people just run towards my website and, and everything is going to be absolutely fine. 
And then a few months into it, you know, Tom and I were looking at our website and our website stats and we're looking at each other thinking, oh, are we doing the right thing? But the fact is, all of these things always take longer than you plan. And I remember you telling me about it and I like, I know they do, but not this time. This time will be really quick. It was not until 2014 that things really started kicking off. And then we started getting more deal flow and then you get the track record, so it makes it easier. It, it's just like any new business. As you grow and you gain that track record, it becomes easier and easier to acquire new customers. And so with any platform, because you're a platform, you've got a cost of acquisition of the customer both sides. In many cases, platforms as they grow become imbalanced slightly. Did you get an imbalance of any form? Too much cash, not enough cash, etc.? Absolutely, all the time. But it wasn't an imbalance of just one way. It was almost on a weekly basis. One week would have too much cash and a lot of the deals getting funded and us not being able to provide enough deal flow for investors, which means that investors eventually start going elsewhere for deal flow. Other times we'd have that deal flow and then investors would be away on holiday or whatever and we wouldn't have enough cash and then we'd have companies on the phone saying, you know, what is any investment going to come through? So it, it was a constant battle. As we've grown and particularly now it's balanced because you just have the, you just have that required size on either side mm. to keep it going without, you know, those, imba- that, those imbalances will always exist, but they're just not that really significant anymore. But at the beginning, oh yes, hugely. I think I really find that it's sort of zigzags or whatever on the way Yes, you keep on focusing, ah, we don't have enough investors, focus on investors. And ah, we don't have enough uh, companies, focus on companies. And then you keep on that sort of ping pong between the two. But that's just how you build a business. You just have to be prepared to go and firefight wherever it's needed the most. So before we go on to some of the people who've been through your platform and the successes and failures, can we just talk a bit more about your funding journey? So at this point now, we've raised 180 or so K. There's another round probably needed quite soon because the team is probably five, six, seven, eight at this point, is it? Correct. So the beginning when no one really believed that anyone would invest online was the really tough part. And that took a very long time to raise the funding round. Then when finally we thought we had the first significant funding round sorted, we had that episode of nearly collapsing in and Jonathan and Michael were coming in. So when, when you thought you were over the worst part of it all, actually the worst, far worse was yet to come. Eventually after that it became easier and easier because then you prove the model, then you, you can show that you have some traction, you have some revenues. Yes, they are small revenues, or they were, and uh, but we needed, a, I think the next funding round was about half a million pounds, I believe. But then you already have some metrics to show. You already have a team around you. The investors start to see that, particularly the early investors, that you are delivering on what you said. And yes, not everything is going according to plan, because it never really does. You have to adapt. But the fact was they could see that I was working really hard. We were all working very hard to achieve what we said we would be achieving, and we were achieving. And that just made it easier. And then the funding round after that was 1.2 million pounds. And from the six to nine months of the first round of about 180,000 pounds, the 1.2 million pounds, we raised it in less than 24 hours. Wow. So that, that is a, a, you know, it's a huge difference. Of which a, a good proportion was from your own members, your own Correct. investors. I had this call with Jonathan that he wanted to invest the whole 1.2 million pounds of the round. And I had to beg him not to, because I wanted to bring our own members as a brand ambassadors. Mm. So he said, fine, I'll underwrite the whole thing, 
And if you can't raise from other people, I'm interested. And that's really how we did it. And then you raised the last round was? Uh, 3.2 million. 3.2 million, excellent. We oversubscribed. We wanted about 2.2 and we ended up with 3.2 or something like that. And again, it just became easier and easier as we, you know, as you grow, it just becomes easier. You, and, and investors become more comfortable. You are delivering on your promises. I'm always very open with investors on what's going well, what's not going so well. I report regularly. So that's one of the really sort of lessons that all entrepreneurs should learn as early as possible in their journey is just report to shareholders. Even if it's just an informal email every month, they will really appreciate it. Yeah, I've got a great example of one that does that wrong here in Cambridge where we haven't had a report for over two years and the business is still trucking on as a probably a lifestyle business and it, it's surviving purely because two of the directors are feeding it loans at the moment, but it still hasn't, the entrepreneur still hasn't reported. So, We've had examples of that. So we've seen companies that were not doing too badly and they end up running out of cash because they raised the money. They didn't report for 18 months and then their first report was quick, we need more cash. And guess what? Investors will just not have the trust in those entrepreneurs and they will write off their initial investment. They would rather write off their initial investment than to put more money in and the entrepreneur to disappear for another year or two until they need more money. And we've also had companies that have reported to shareholders monthly or quarterly. Monthly sometimes a little bit too much, but certainly quarterly, that is, I consider, the perfect sort of uh, frequency. And because investors know what's happening, they know that not everything is going well, but they also know that a company is evolving. And when it comes to the funding round, there are no surprises. They're told there will be a funding round in six months' time, and then in three months' time. And when it gets to the point, everyone is expecting it. There are no surprises, and they are incredibly supportive of the business, even when not everything is going as well as planned. That's a really important lesson for entrepreneurs, but also for people who want to be more invested investors because they must ensure this communication. It's something I, I mean, I write into shareholder agreements if I'm doing the term sheet, quarterly reporting, yearly face to face in lieu of an AGM. Still difficult to get entrepreneurs to do that, <laughs> but that's the idea. Well, at Syndicate Room, we actually, we've realized the importance of this and we demand quarterly reporting by entrepreneurs and we do chase them. For it and of course if they refuse we'll need to follow it up eventually on a legal basis but by the time they refuse and we have to go on a legal basis something is going very very wrong with a company already yes you kept true to purpose in terms of what the original pitch and what we i invested in the others invested in all those years ago but you've added some bolt-ons haven't you there's a fund sitting there etc so maybe what your vision was for the size of the market wasn't quite there or maybe the vision always was to put on a number of other... Can you just talk through that process of making those decisions? A few months ago, we turned four years old from being live, and I presented the first ever pitch I did to investors. Exactly the same slides. And it was, it was remarkable how much of Syndicate Room four years older was already in those slides. So the vision that we, you know, that we worked from the very beginning is still exactly the same is this fair and transparent access to the investments that the professionals are investing in. And it's always been the same and it's going to remain the same. The bolt-ons, most of them planned, I mean, hindsight is a beautiful thing, and it was mostly by coincidence, I believe. And, you know, there's no way I would have had the foresight to have guessed all of that. But the fact was the bolt-ons that are really working very well 
were all part of the first presentation. So, for example, Fund 28. Mm. The name wasn't there, but the fund was. And remarkably, the amounts that we ended up raising last year are exactly the ones that were on that first ever pitch. And then the ones that didn't work as well was our expansion into capital markets. was never part of the first pitch. And it was sort of an idea that we came up with and we started getting excited about it and we executed. And we executed really well, but it's a very different world from private companies. And it's not a world that we're particularly well suited to, at least not at the moment. So it is working, but it's not working nowhere near as well as we thought it would. And we basically reduced the amount of investment in that in that space. And without giving any secrets away, what's the future look like, you know, in terms of the business? Yeah, of course. So one, one of the things that is really important for Syndicate Room is to gain the trust from investors. And I always said from the beginning, and actually one, one of the first to hear that, is that for me to, to work with the passion I have for Syndicate Room and to make it work, it has to be by doing the right thing. Something that I'm really proud of. And there's no cutting kernels or taking shortcuts. And that's one of my regular advices to entrepreneurs is that build something that you're really proud of. Now you can look back and say, right, you know, I, together with the team, did this. And if it's something that you look back and you think, ooh, actually, I'm a bit embarrassed about that and it was, you know, I wasn't very honest or something like that, just don't do it. Yeah, so if you're really proud of it and you fail, at least you, yeah, your yes, own pride is still there. I mean, this failures will... And you learn and you, you pick up again and you try it again. And also, I believe that investors, those investors that backed you, if you reported to them on a regular basis, if you build something that you're really proud of, it just happened not to work out because maybe market conditions weren't good enough, maybe there was a downturn, maybe whatever may have happened. But then when you try it again, investors will trust you because they know that you've put really hard effort to make it work. And maybe the first one didn't work, maybe the second will, or the third one. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about people now. So both the staff and the board. So staff, you're about 30 people now, of which some are in Portugal, some here, and some in London, here in Cambridge. Okay, that's built up well. I, I suspect that the culture is really strong, that the cohesion of the group's good. Any tips about hiring and, or firing, for that matter? Yes, uh, loads. So Tom and I, none of us had any experience in hiring or firing, for that matter, when we started. And the first person we ever interviewed was Fran, and, mm. and she, she ended up being our first hire. And I still remember vividly that interview where Tom and I were, we asked Fran, right, so explain it in your own words, what does Syndicate Room do? And she explained it to us in such a way that Tom and I looked at each other and we both thought exactly the same thing, which was, I wish I had taken notes to put it on our website because there was a phenomenal explanation. And we're so impressed we hired Fran, who is still with us and practically a co-founder because she came in so early, as many others that we have. And that was really what defined Syndicate Room. And we were, in many ways, lucky because we, we hired the right people without knowing much about how to hire people. There was just a personality fit. And that is not to mean that we're all the same. We're actually very different. There's a chemistry. You don't have to be this clone to have a chemical bond. And the fact is of that sort of what I call the first wave of recruitment in Syndicate Room was crucial in defining the culture of the company for the, what I call the second wave of, of uh, recruitment as we sort of started scaling up. And all of those people are still around and they are people that I trust entirely, they trust me entirely, and we just work really well as a team. And without that, it would have been absolutely impossible to get syndicate to work what it is today. 
But you've also had to let people go and people have left, I'm sure. Yes, so some people have left. So it's a high performance culture. That's not to mean that it's long hours. It's just working really smartly and having fun. And that's crucial because we all spend so much time in the office. You know, most of our awake hours are in the office. You have to enjoy it. You have to really love what you're doing and the people you're working with. And if you're not, you you better off going elsewhere, mm. to be honest. And that's really important for us that you know we have communal tables for people to sit around with their laptops like a cafe and they can work all together, even if they're working on different things. And that's really important. People have left and there were mostly people that didn't really fit into that culture. And that was uh, sort of, was it a hiring error? Well, in hindsight, yes, but at the hiring, at the moment you were hiring, could you have noticed that? Mm. Sometimes you had a, like this, sneaky suspicion and you should have just acted on it. Hire slowly, fire fast. Yep. Exactly. And that's one of the things we need to learn a lot more is, is the fire fast. I think mm. both Tom and I are... Too nice. We're just too nice. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we are. Sometimes we are, which works great for some things, but then some others, maybe we shouldn't. It's all part of the learning, isn't it? Yeah. Can we talk about the board? So just talk through who they are and what value they've brought. So we are incredibly lucky with the board of directors that we have. And I wish that all the companies, all the startups could be just as lucky. So Tom and I as executive directors, as the the co-founders. Then the first non-executive director to join was David Gill, who's a managing director of St. John's Innovation Center. He worked for HSBC in the past. He has been involved with a venture capitalism investment. He has been part of St. John's Innovation Center, obviously. He has a wealth of experience in that space. He kindly accepted my invitation to join as a non-executive director. And his wealth of experience and knowledge and understanding of people is crucial. The other person that joined was Tim Bellis. And he's the best lecturer I had for the entire MBA course. And he used to be the senior partner of Herbert Smith, the very large law firm, in M&A and corporate transactions. So he understands not only just the legals, but also the mentality between those, those sort of deals. And he's now our chairman. And he has been absolutely instrumental. I asked him actually several times to become another executive director, which he passed on that offer because he was very busy. He, he Being a lawyer, he's risk averse, naturally. But he'd retired out of law, hadn't he, and become an academic? Correct, yes, correct. He was a lecturer at the Church Wizard School and he'd recently retired. He is remaining chairman of Syndicate Room. He's actually getting more and more involved with Syndicate Room, which is, is great to see. He's very good at listening and asking all the right questions to make me think and challenging in a really respectful and in a way that I absolutely love because it makes me think, we openly discuss things and, and that just really helps. And then finally, Jonathan Milner, who invested in the round that we talked about just earlier, didn't want to get involved because he was too busy and it's way out of his uh, sort of comfort zone in terms of sector that he invests in. And then we started delivering and started getting more involved or more interested. And I started having coffees with him every maybe every two months and then every month and then every two weeks. And since then, we've become he has become um, a little bit like or very much like Tim Bellis, a mentor of mine and a friend of mine as well, just like yourself and Tim Bellis. And he obviously brings the experience of scaling up a business. You know, he started AppCam, he founded AppCam, and it's, I think about 800, 900 people, two billion pound. And the way that Jonathan adds value is really that experience and it's me being able to go to him, as I just did last night actually with an email and he replied straight away, look, I'm having this problem, 
if you come across that before, what do you think? I'm thinking about doing this. And uh, you know, the value of having that board is phenomenal. Yes. Yes, you've been very lucky to build that up, but not just luck, the skill, your skill of motivating people to give their time up to be proper investor and investor. Yes, I think it's, there's a matter of, it's obviously very valuable to me and I'm learning, as a person, I'm learning a huge amount every day and at every board meeting. There's also the fact that I think they enjoy doing it because they can really see that I'm listening and I, I'm taking good notes of their advice and I'm following it or I'm discussing it. And I'm very open about when we have issues, be it from me or from the company or whichever, and go through them. And so I think that it's, it's just a very enjoyable board because there are no egos involved. No one is there to ask questions just to show how clever they are. Because yeah. I think that could be very destructive in a board. You don't want people to be concerned about showing how clever they are. Everyone around the table is clever. We all know that. No one has to show it. We all that really focus on building a great business. And what's also interesting, you've actually got one entrepreneur, one banker, and one lawyer. So they're not all, all they, all they understand entrepreneurial journeys, they haven't been entrepreneurial, two of them. Yes, correct. That's a perfect mix for our needs. Good. Let's talk about some of the journey, because you've invested, I don't know whether it's in the public domain, but a large number of businesses have had funding through the platform. We'll talk about one or two successes, and please, one or two failures. Of course. So we have funded over 120 companies by now. And we've had just under 10 failures. So percentage-wise, in four years is actually very good. But it's really important that people understand, that investors understand, there will be more failures. So failures are, as you know, because in your portfolio you have your own failures. (laughs) And you're also very open about it. You have a page. And there will be more failures, no doubt about it. But the crucial part is how do those failures take place, right? And the really bad ones that really burn investors is when entrepreneurs either just give up or there was something really obvious that investors missed Mm. or they just disappear, try to build a business, don't report and then come back for more money. Mm. We've had what I would say a perfect example of a failure if there's such a thing. Yes, there is. As failures go, as failures go, I think they, they manage it. We actually had two, two really good ones. One was Naomi, where they were growing, they were doing really well, but then their main competitor, much larger competitor in the US, as they were raising and getting in the process of raising a much larger round, their competitor in the US failed to raise a significant sum because they were struggling to make the numbers add up in terms of business model or revenue model. And that undermined their, their, their larger round. And then the whole thing starts getting tricky and tricky because then other investors get spooked by it. And they just basically were running out of cash. But the thing was that they constantly and consistently reported back to shareholders before they were into troubles. And then while the trouble was happening, and they were very, very open and very honest about it. And the lead investor for that deal was Simon Thorpe. Mm, yeah, very well. Oh, yeah, um, and, and that was a great way of handling it. And I had absolutely no hassle from investors. You know, people understood, look, it just happens. You know, I know the risks. I know that when I invest in these things, some of them will fail. Mm. And no one likes to see a failure or to lose money. But as far as failures and losing money go, that's a way that no one really was upset about it. Uh, everyone is sad about it, but no one is, is upset. Another example of a failure was Sochi Games, which was actually, as it happened, our first failure. 
And what the entrepreneur did, and in my opinion, very cleverly, was he recorded a video saying, look, we tried to do this, this went well, this didn't go so well. Our cost of acquisition was high, way higher than we ever thought it would be. Cost of customer acquisition. Cost, yes, yeah. sorry, cost of customer acquisition. And therefore the business model isn't working, so we're going to call it a day. And they stopped trading. And he recorded a video to the investors explaining what had happened. I actually got emails following that video saying, let me know when that person is raising money again, because yeah. I want to, to invest. Because they could see that honesty in that person, right? And when that is the case, Again, no one was upset. Everyone is sad about the failure, and particularly for the entrepreneur after putting so many hours trying to make it work, but no one is upset about it. Yes, okay. Let's also talk about some successes. You've had some successes, haven't you? Yes, we've had. Oval Medical Technologies was an exit that we had with Barbell Lead as the, the entrepreneur. And um, so that was a success. It was actually a quicker than expected exit, and again, you know, Barbara was keeping the entrepreneurs, oh, sorry, the investors up to date on what was happening. Of course, bear in mind that a lot of these deals are very confidential while they are taking place, and there's only at certain periods of time that it can release some information. But we've had many others that went on to raise larger rounds, and we've actually had some companies that have been incredibly successful on follow-on rounds from syndicate room investors. So they raised a certain amount, and then what they got, so for example, recycling technologies, and then what they got was, because they're very good at reporting back to shareholders, when they go for a new funding round, shareholders know that it's coming months and months and months in advance. They know how much they've evolved since the last funding round, and they are very willing to support the company. And what that means is that even new investors will look for signals. Right? And a great signal is how many of the existing shareholders are following their money. Exactly, particularly the bigger ones, particularly the lead and any people writing larger checks. It is also important to understand, but that is just a matter of a few questions, and that is very clear, that some of the larger investors may have a disproportionately large signaling problem because they might be... I know some investors that invest very large sums very early on, and then they don't follow on. Mm. And that's just their investment strategy. So this signaling is not negative, it's just their strategy. But that can be uh, explained. That's a very interesting point because I, I say that you should keep at least three times what you initially put in aside for any one investment. So a third upfront, a third because the business plan initially won't work, and a third for growth capital potentially. Not everybody does that and there are reasons why you don't need to do that, but in principle you should not use all your firepower in the first time you invest? It depends on your strategy. You should not, but if the value of the share is going up, yes, you might be getting diluted, but say you invest at £10 per share, and then the next round is at £15 per share. If you don't follow on, yes, you might get diluted percentage-wise of the company, but the value of your shares has just gone up. So the value of your investment has just gone up. So if you don't follow on, it's not really a huge problem in terms of dilution. The real problem begins when there's a down round. Yes. And if the share price goes down to, say, five pounds, and you don't have dry powder to follow. Or you feel you shouldn't. I mean, this is, or if this you, is different. For example, we have a deal called Cam Nutra. And uh, Cam Nutra, or Cambridge Nutraceuticals. Which I'm an investor in. Oh, are you? Okay, yeah, yeah. so you are investing. So they had a funding round, very successful funding round with Syndicate Driven. Then they had to change a few things in their business model and they had a down round and they were very successful on that down round because they're very open with investors 
including syndicate room investors, and probably maybe and you me, as well. Yes. And they had a down round. So as an investor, it was an amazing opportunity to grab more of the company when they were just sorting themselves out. And now they are having a, an up round, a significant up round again, and they're doing really, really well. I've just put in company. four times my preemption in this. Four times. So my preemption in the latest round. Yeah. And that's just how these things work. So yes, many people follow their money and have that a third or, or even a quarter of what they are planning to put in the company on their first round. Mm. So might as just have a different strategy. Yes, okay. So before we move on to tips for entrepreneurs and angels, what would you have liked to have heard from me five years ago when we first met? What could I have told you which would have helped with your journey? You could have told me, don't worry, Gonzalo, everything will be all right, and eventually you will be able to raise money. But you didn't have known that. And had you told me that, I would say, Peter, what do you know? You can't predict the future. <laughs> and, but that would have helped a, a huge amount. It's tricky because being an entrepreneur, you just come across so many different challenges and you learn so many different things. Be it dealing with investors and putting funding rounds together, dealing with people, recruiting, customers, cash flow. You have to, to learn all of this. So it's, it's, it's actually very tricky to just to have one specific sort of... Okay, that, I know that was very unfair on me, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. but if I were to, to give any tips, it's great to dream about success, but you have to work really hard to actually make it happen. So don't just dream about it, get on with things and make it happen and be prepared. The journey is far tougher than anyone will ever tell you, yep. but it's also far more rewarding than anyone will ever be able to explain it to you. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's a, you have to, to have the stamina to put through all the good and the bad, particularly the bad moments. But that's what it is to be an entrepreneur. The, the peaks and troughs are just out of the scale. You know, in, sometimes in the same day or even the same morning, you feel like on top of the world and, he, and the, the company is going to go to a billion pound company. And then suddenly you get an email or you see something else. Or somebody and, and leaves that you don't want to leave. Yeah. And, and then you think, oh my God, why is this happening to me? But the crucial thing that I think I've done since starting Syndicate Room is, is to listen and to learn. Right. I was incredibly lucky to be surrounded by people like yourself and the, the board and, and others. And the amount of information that I can learn is I, you know, I just had to learn everything. Mm. And, mm. Uh, and if people like yourself have been there, done that, and if I have any tips, then I, it would be very silly of me not to listen. You know, entrepreneurs cannot act like teenagers that know everything that is out there in the world. You know, we just really don't. We just have to learn as we go along. So why not listen to those people that already know? And then you can act. You know, you, can, you may agree or disagree, but to listen and to learn is really, really important. What about tips for angels then? So passive angels and active angels and what I'm hoping of passive becoming active angels. So for active angels, again, going a little bit, going back to my experience with our own board is that don't tell people what to do just to, you know, just to show how clever you are, right? You've obviously done well in your life, so you're clearly clever already, so you don't need to show it to anyone. And really listen and ask all the right questions and enjoy and enjoy working with those entrepreneurs. And if you're not enjoying it, it's pointless to, to, to do it. For passive investors that hopefully will become active is start 
trying to help entrepreneurs, you know, just asking, just sending a, a friendly email saying, hey, look, I have contacts in this industry. You might be interested. Do you want to meet up for a coffee? Don't get offended if they are too busy and they have, you know, other maybe more active angel investors already. But then if they are available, yeah, do meet them and help them because that's really appreciated by, by entrepreneurs. And also understand that nothing ever goes according to plan. You know, things go well, other things go not so well, and usually in parallel in the same company. You know, like I just used the example of us having the fund going really well, but the capital market's not going so well. And the company still lives on, and we just focus more resources on the funds and the platform, and not so many in, in the capital markets. Be prepared for things not going quite according to, to plan. I must just give an example at that point. And it's, I was on, uh, listening to Mitch Kapoor, whose name you won't know, who'd set up a company called Lotus for Lotus 123, the spreadsheet, which was before Excel. He put together a plan to have revenues of $1 million in the first year, not very much, and his revenues were $53 million. That's something not going to go to plan in a different way. <laughs> Slightly different experience from most entrepreneurs, yes. Exactly. So Gonzalo, that's been really interesting. I've learned again something and I've spent a lot of time with you in the last six years. I'm sure our audience will also have learned from that. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me in the show.